Well, please turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. This passage will be the passage that we will be anchoring upon as we consider the second petition in the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please turn with me in your order of worship to the confession or confessional reading element. This morning we are confessing together Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 48, question and answer 123. As always, I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question 123. What does the second petition of the Lord's Prayer mean? Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all. Well, let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you that you have not remained hidden, but you have revealed yourself uh, to us and to our children, not only in creation, which testifies to your power, to, to your glory and to your justice, but most supremely in your written word, which fully makes known to us the one plan, your one plan of salvation for a sinful people. And we pray that as we consider uh, this word uh, in front of us this morning, that your spirit would be present and that you would cause us to not merely hear or read uh, these words, but that we would inwardly digest these scriptures for our edification and growth in the Christian life. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, boys and girls, what are, uh, what are, what are, what are the, what is the main, se- the main sections of our catechism? What are the main sections of our catechism? Violet? Good. Uh, very good. Which, which section are we in right now? Gratitude. Uh, what is true faith? What are the three elements of true faith? Isaiah? 
Knowledge, assent, and trust. And what is the content of this, this true faith, Noel? The Apostles' Creed. Very good. What benefit do we receive when we profess this true faith, Annabelle? Christ's righteousness. Uh, where does this faith come from? Isaiah? The preaching of God's word. Annabelle? The Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit use to confirm or assure our faith? Violet? Sacraments, yes, very good. And uh, as we've transitioned to the gratitude section, the two main, um, I guess, documents that we've been considering have been the Ten Commandments and now the Lord's Prayer. It's important for us to realize that, that the Reformation was not a revolution. I've said this before, but the Reformation was not a revolution. It was not seeking to, to, to completely start over when it comes to how to do church but rather it was truly seeking to go back, not only to the New Testament, but to the, the very earliest of the post-apostolic church. And the Roman Catholic Church, which really came into existence in the 16th century at the Council of Trent, was the codification of late medieval beliefs and practices. And the Reformation, one of the recoveries the Re- Reformation sought to, to recover was the ancient practice of catechesis. From the very earliest of days in the post-apostolic church, the church sought to, to taught her, uh, teach her people the Christian faith through instruction on the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, the sacraments, and the Lord's Prayer. And so as we seek to learn the Christian faith through the Heidelberg Catechism, and today as we consider the Lord's Prayer, we're following a very ancient practice of catechesis. Now, two weeks ago, you'll remember we, we considered uh, the first petition, hallowed be Hallowed be your name. And in that first petition, we, we thought about what the, what the catechism, uh, or how the catechism explained that first petition. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're essentially praying that we would grow in our knowledge of God. One way in which we honor the name of God is by seeking to, to learn about the name of God, to learn who he is and who he is for us in Jesus Christ. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we also are praying that we will grow in our worship of him, in our praise of him. Uh, we also are praying that we would hallow the name of God in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. God's placed his name upon us in baptism, and we are called to represent God well in our daily life. So today we come to this second petition, your kingdom come. Now, the, the Lord's Prayer is, is, is composed of six petitions. The first, the first three petitions have to do with God's priorities. The hallowing of God's name, the coming of his kingdom, and, and his will being done. And the last three petitions have to do with our needs. This structure of the Lord's Prayer teaches us that we should prioritize God's priorities when it comes to our our individual prayers. The Lord's Prayer begins not with, with our needs or wants. It begins with God's priorities. God's name being hallowed, God's kingdom coming, God's will being done. And, and our prayers should then reflect this balance as well. And so today as we come to the second petition, in general terms, when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying that God's kingdom would, would, be, uh, would come more and more in this age. And we're praying for that day when God's kingdom will fully come at the return of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at, at, at uh, three things in particular. We're going to reflect upon what God's kingdom is. 
we're going to reflect upon the prayers that we are to pray for God's kingdom. And last of all, we're going to consider how the second petition functions as a microcosm, or it represents a very important part of our life of gratitude. So first, what is the kingdom of God? This is one of those topics that are, or, or, or terms that's used a lot, but again, precise definitions sometimes can be difficult. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God, according to the New Testament, is not an abstract reality. Rather, the church is the institutional form of God's kingdom. The church is the institutional form of God's kingdom. Or to put it another way, we, where should we look to find the concrete expression of God's kingdom here on earth? The church, the institutional visible church. We see this definition in Matthew chapter 16, this passage that we recently read. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus comes to his disciples and he asks them, uh, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond by saying, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you are Elijah or, or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus then follows up and says, well, well who do you say that I am? Again, he's speaking to the disciples. And who responds? Peter. Simon Peter responds. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter gives a correct confession of Jesus' identity and, and, uh, and divinity. Jesus then responds to this confession and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, uh, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but your Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 18, Jesus says something very important. He says, I tell you, Peter, or I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, in the original language, uh, the word Peter and rock are the same word. So, saying you are Peter, and on this Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, Roman Catholics point to this verse as a proof text for how Jesus has established the Roman papacy, and he is building his church upon uh, the bishop in Rome, which continues um, to uh, succeed one another to, to our present day. However, we need to keep in mind the, the metaphor that Jesus, Peter, and Paul used to describe the New Covenant Church. I've referred to this before, but Jesus, Peter, and Paul all refer to the New Covenant Church as a building, a temple. And in this, this New Covenant temple, Christ himself is the cornerstone. The New Testament prophets and apostles are the foundation, and we are the living bricks that make up the walls of this new covenant temple. And so what Jesus is saying here in verse 18 is he's saying that, that he will continue to build his church upon the foundation of himself and upon the foundation of the apostles, of which Peter is a representative. In practical terms, what Jesus is saying here is that we are to plant churches upon the foundation of the word of God, which contains the testimony of Jesus and the apostles. Now in verse 19, Jesus continues, and he tells Peter, again, he's still speaking to Peter, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Boys and girls, what are the, the two keys of the kingdom? Uh, Lily? 
Yes, the preaching of the word in church discipline. So Jesus here is giving to the church, not just the apostolic church, but but even the post-apostolic church, the keys of the kingdom. Meaning he's commissioning the church through her officers to authoritatively preach the gospel and to exercise church discipline, restorative church discipline. And so this this promise or this... um, Uh, what Jesus says here in verse 19 teaches us a number of important points. It teaches us that the way in which Jesus builds and preserves his church in this age is through the official ministry of the keys of the kingdom. Namely, uh, Jesus builds and preserves his church through the faithful preaching of his word. Jesus faithfully preserves and builds his church through the faithful administration of his sacraments, which are appendages to that word. Jesus builds and preserves his church through Christian discipline, through the faithful oversight and discipling of the church's members, and when necessary, the pursuit of those members who are straying for the goal of restoration and repentance. This is how Jesus preserves and builds his church. This also teaches us that not every institution that calls themselves a church is necessarily an expression of the kingdom of God. Rather, only those churches that faithfully exercise the keys of the kingdom. Only those churches that faithfully preach the word, administer the sacraments, and exercise church discipline. Only those churches are an expression of the kingdom of God. In Revelation 1, 1 through 3, Paul, I mean, uh, uh, Jesus speaks about how there are some churches with whom Jesus has removed the, la- the lampstand of his presence. And so those churches, no doubt, in the first century continue to refer to themselves as churches, but Christ was not present. And so only those churches that are faithful to what Jesus says in verse 19, that are faithful to demonstrate the three marks of a true church, are a rightful expression of the kingdom of God. And last of all, we see that Jesus here is connecting the church to the kingdom. Notice that he says that that he will build his church, and in the same breath, he gives to the church the keys of the kingdom. And so the church is the institutional form or expression of the kingdom of God. And the way in which we experience the life of the kingdom is in the local church. So according to Jesus, the kingdom is not an abstract concept or reality. Uh, We should look to true local churches to to find uh, a rightful expression of the kingdom of God. Now, if you think of this petition, your kingdom come, as the label on a box, what what kind of prayers are inside the box? Meaning, what kind of prayers are we to be praying for when when we say, your kingdom come? Well, question answer 123 uh, Uh, says that when we pray your kingdom come, we are to pray that the Lord would preserve and increase his church. This is the petition that I want to focus upon. There are many things that we are to pray when we pray your kingdom come, but I'd like to focus upon how the catechism directs our attention to this one petition of, 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 of which we are to pray that God would preserve and increase his church. And so when we pray your kingdom come, uh, we are essentially praying that God would, would preserve his church here on earth in this age. And if we think about what Jesus said in verse 19 in Matthew 16, we're praying that the the church would be faithful in exercising the keys of the kingdom, faithful in preaching the word, faithful in administering the sacraments, faithful in discipling and exercising oversight of her members. 
We're also praying that the Lord would increase his church. We're praying that the Lord would, would establish more mission works and church plants where there are no true churches. We're praying that the Lord would raise up missionaries and church planters to work in these new mission uh, fields. And we're praying that uh, more and more people would, would submit to God's spirit and word. And you may notice that every week in our bulletin, our order of worship, I include uh, prayers from missionaries within the URCNA, missionaries and church planners. I include some of these petitions in our pastoral prayer. And so one way in which we can practically pray for God to increase his church is by becoming familiar with the work of missionaries and particularly missionaries within our own federation of churches, the URCNA. Now, as we pray for the Lord to preserve and increase his church, it's important that we, we understand how God does this in this age. How does God preserve his church? How does God build his church? And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus gives a helpful parable about how the church grows in this age. And so listen to, to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. So this parable, in this parable, Jesus is, is using the metaphor of, of scattering seed to describe growth in the kingdom. What this tells us is that God is the one who gives the growth in the kingdom. Uh, we do not change people, as I said earlier this morning. We do not save people, sanctify people, mature people. God is the one who grows his kingdom, and God is the one who grows individuals in his kingdom. Uh, we are powerless to do that. Paul says much the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6, when he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul, servants through whom you believed? As the Lord assigned to each, I planted Apollos' water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. God is the one who gives the growth, which, which, which should cause us to pray your kingdom come a lot. Because we're not the one, ones who issue in the kingdom of God. God is the one who grows his kingdom. And, and this growth that God gives to the kingdom is very ordinary. The... New Testament, not just here in Matthew chapter 4, but, or Mark chapter 4, but in other passages as well, the New Testament uses agrarian metaphors to describe growth in the kingdom. This means that, that growth in the kingdom is very ordinary. It's like watching uh, you know, a field of corn grow or a, a tree grow. It's not perceptible to the naked eye, but over time you can see tremendous growth. The reason we refer to the means of grace, boys and girls, that, that work the Spirit to create faith in our hearts through preaching the gospel and confirming that faith through the sacraments. The reason why we refer to these means as the ordinary means of grace is because there is nothing flashy about preaching moments like this. There's nothing flashy about mere water, bread, and wine. Just like there's, there's, there's nothing flashy to faithful watering and weeding of vegetation. However, diligence and faithfulness to these things will produce a bountiful harvest. And so these metaphors that, that the New Testament uses to describe the kingdom are very helpful for us in, 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 um, in, in, 
and setting our, our expectations when it comes to what, what we should be expecting as we experience life in the kingdom of God. Now, you'll also notice that the catechism also says that when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are to pray that the Lord would defeat our enemies. He says that we are to pray the Lord would destroy the works of the devil. We are to pray the Lord would, would uh, tear down every power which is formed against God's word. Now, how does God destroy the church's enemies in this age? Well, he does not do this through the physical sword. The, middle, the medieval church got it wrong when they sought to, to fight holy wars. Rather, the church, or, uh, rather, God fight, or defeats the enemies of the church through his word. This is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, when he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul as an apostle was not called to wield the physical sword, but rather he was called to wield the spiritual sword, the word of God, which is the power to destroy divine strongholds. Unless we become triumphalistic as we think about God's promise to preserve us against our enemies, in question answer 26 of our catechism, as we confessed what we mean when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of the Apostles' Creed, the catechism reminds us that this age is an age that's characterized as a veil of tears. Whatever adversity God sends upon us in this veil of tears, God promises to turn it for our good. And so this age is characterized both by gospel growth, as the Lord continues to triumph over divine strongholds through his word, but it's also an age that's characterized by, by suffering, by trials and tribulation, uh, by being a veil of tears. And we need to embrace both of those realities in this age. Well, last of all, you'll notice that when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying for the second coming of Christ. We're praying for that day in which God's kingdom will be all in all. We're praying for that day in which the new creation will be consummated, where we no longer have to experience this veil of tears, suffering, trials, and tribulation, the weaknesses of the flesh and the body, a day in which all, all tears will be wiped away. And so it's right for us to pray, come Lord Jesus. It's right for us to pray, your kingdom will come, and, and hope and long for that day when Jesus will return, and all evil will be put asunder. If we are a pilgrim people, then... It, 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 it's right and normal for us to long for that day in which we will fully be in our heavenly homeland. Well, I said before that as, we, as I introduced the Lord's Prayer, that one of the reasons why the Catechism says that prayer is the chief part of our life of thankfulness is because prayer has the unique function of of operating as a, a microcosm of our entire life of gratitude, meaning that the attitude that you have in your heart during times of genuine prayer is the attitude that you are to have during every moment of your day. And so in that sense, prayer serves as a, 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 as a representative of, a rep, a represents our entire life of gratitude. And this second petition also serves as a microcosm insofar as it represents one very important duty that we're called to live according to. And what is that duty? Well, we are called to be devoted to God's kingdom in this age. We are called to be faithful and devoted members of God's or Christ's church. It would be pretty hypocritical for us to say, your kingdom come, but have no formal connection to God's kingdom here on earth. 
And so the way in which we live in light of this petition is by seeking to do good to everyone, but especially those of the household of faith. The way in which we seek to live in light of this petition is by obeying our leaders and submitting to them those whom God has called to watch over our souls. The way in which we seek to live in light of this petition is by seeking to fulfill the one another's of Scripture. And so when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying really for the church. We're praying that the Lord would preserve the church, build the church. We're praying that the Lord would protect the church from her spiritual enemies. And we're also praying that we would be a people devoted to the church. And so let us pray that God's kingdom would come.